The March Lion roars this week. Blizzards, floods, tornadoes, and everything in between are pounding the Midwest. What's it like to be inside a whiteout? How common are they? We'll ask a blizzard watcher. And March means sweet maple sap is ready to run. What kind of weather does it take to get sap from the tree and syrup to your table? The dangerous and the sweet sides of March, today on Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Welcome back to our weekly weather adventure, everybody. I'm Minnesota Public Radio Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner, fellow Minnesota Public Radio and Career National Weather Service Met. Craig Edwards is our weather kimosabe today. Craig, does it get any better than this for guys who love a good storm this week? Isn't that something, Paul? We used to say you can't beat the warmth of a March sun. Well, today you can beat it with some Arctic air with temperatures sitting in a single digits in the first part of March in southern Minnesota. Isn't that something? Yeah, and we've had uh, severe weather outbreaks already in the Midwest and a big old snowstorm and blizzard uh, yesterday. Craig, civil emergency messages. I saw those flying out of the Grand Forks office yesterday. Closing freeways and whiteout conditions, I don't recall seeing too many of those. Well, that's something, Paul, that I think we learned over the years working with the emergency management directors that says, let's do something that's proactive instead of having to react to people getting stranded. So what they did is they were proactive, said, let's close down the highways, keep people out of that uh, harm of getting stranded on the highways, particularly at night with the winds and the whiteouts. So I think it was a very good uh, strategy working with a partnership of emergency management and the law enforcement agencies and the National Weather Service. In weather headlines this week, the numbers are in for the winter of 2008-2009. NOAA says the U.S. average temperature was just slightly above average this winter. When you add up all the weather highs and lows, it was 33.49 degrees in the U.S. this winter. That's uh, 0.53 or about half a degree above average. It was mild in the south and west, but cold, as we know, in the Midwest. Craig, cooler perhaps than some previous winters, but still above average according to your fellow weather boys and girls at NOAA. I think what helped us recover, Paul, was the fact that February was not as dramatically as cold as uh, December and January. Of course, uh, February was very cold in northern Minnesota still, but right here in southern Minnesota, a little bit above average. So I I think that helped balance out the, the winter that started out real cold in December and January. A new National Weather Service report this week analyzes forecasting performance and public response during the Super Tuesday tornado outbreak of February 5th and 6th, 2008. That's the second deadliest tornado outbreak in U.S. history. Why do some people take cover while others ride out severe weather? That was the question, and here's what they found. Two-thirds of the victims were in mobile homes. Sixty percent did not have access to a safe shelter, such as a basement or a storm cellar. Some indicated they thought the threat was minimal because February, not within the traditional tornado season. Now, several of those interviews said they spent time seeking confirmation and went to a safe location only after they saw the tornado. Many people also minimized the threat of personal risk through optimism bias. That's the belief that such bad things only happen to other people. Craig, did you ever run into optimism bias in your days at the Weather Service? Uh I sure have, and it bothers me that that still goes on today. Paul, in the 1980s, I did a study. I was sort of like undercover. Uh, I went out and investigated the tornado safety for mobile home parks in central Indiana, particularly Indianapolis, and almost 100% was they had no safe shelter, 
and they didn't believe it could happen to them. So here we are 25, 30 years later, and we still continue with this optimism is it can't happen to us. Well, when it comes to storms, there's nothing quite like a Minnesota or a Dakota's blizzard, and it was a full whiteout in the Red River Valley this week. Blizzards are something Rich Nystat knows well. He spent his career forecasting and studying them for the National Weather Service Twin Cities office, and he joins us today from Minneapolis. Rich, welcome to Jet Streaming. Paul, good to be here. Hey, let's start with defining a blizzard. Uh, if I recall correctly, we're talking visibilities a quarter of a mile or lower and considerable falling and or blowing snow that causes those visibilities plus winds sustained of 35 miles an hour or greater. Is that about it? And has that definition changed over the years? That's pretty much it, Paul. There was a time probably back in the 1970s when there was also a temperature criteria. The temperature had to be 20 degrees or lower. Uh, That was before we started talking about wind chills. So I think it was an attempt to address that. And one of the, over the years, one of the interesting things is on the wind speed, sometimes it's sustained 35 miles an hour and greater, and other times it was defined as gusts. And the visibility also has varied over time, and it usually is referred to as frequently less than one quarter mile, but then frequently isn't defined. Well, let me jump in here, Rich. You you were my partner in crime at the National Weather Service for a long time. Do you think that We've got a, we sort of extended this uh, this term of blizzard a little bit too much, a little bit loosey goosey for some of these expanded offices of the National Weather Service. Because I remember when you and I were working back in the olden days, when we had a blizzard, it was something that was historical that was written about for several days and archived as an historical event as well. What do you, what's your take on blizzards these days in Minnesota, particularly? Well, I think uh, the term blizzard and blizzard warning are used more recently than they have been in the past. But I think it's a, it's a two-edged sword. It's an attempt by offices and the Weather Service in order to raise people's awareness. Blizzards can be deadly, and people tend to react differently to the term blizzard warning than they do winter storm warning, although from a meteorological viewpoint, they can overlap one another. Rich, let's talk a little bit about frequency. I, I would imagine blizzards are most common in January and February time frame. Uh, First of all, is that true? And secondly, was it unusual to have one this week in early March? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Paul, and the peak frequency is January followed closely by February. And when you're talking March, if you're talking southeastern Minnesota, yes, that would be rare. If you're talking far western Minnesota, it's not so rare. Uh, Western Minnesota really has a much higher frequency of blizzards into south-central Minnesota than the rest of Minnesota. I can tell you uh, an interesting story, by the way, that is not Minnesota, but I'm sure you have listeners that listen from North Dakota. We do. That many years ago, I was a forecaster in Bismarck, North Dakota, and I can't remember if it was March of 1973 or March of 1974, but I was helping to launch a, uh, a weather balloon during a blizzard in Bismarck, North Dakota, and the wind was so strong that it actually wrapped the uh, the rope that attached the, the radio sign instrument to the balloon, got wrapped around my neck, and I just about strangled during a blizzard, kind of an unusual uh, occurrence. Oh, my, and and uh, amazing and, and tragic almost. How, how did you get out of that situation? Were you just... Well, there were, the, the reason I was out there is two of us were trying to launch the balloon instead of one, 
and Gene, the, uh, the primary launcher of the balloon, was able to uh, unwrap it. It was a bit scary, to say the least. Well, I'm glad that that worked out well, and, you know, I, I can't imagine that's one of those things you don't want as a meteorologist on your tombstone. No, <laughs> what a way a to go. Story. It's a great story, isn't it? It is. Now, let's talk wind velocity for a minute. What There's a blizzard from falling snow, and then there's what we call a ground blizzard. And a lot of people don't realize, I think, that you can get a blizzard when high winds just pick up the snow that's already off the ground, already on the ground, even if snow is not falling. What kind of wind velocity are we talking about to take that snow off the ground and elevate it to blizzard conditions without falling snow? Well, I don't think we really have a set speed, Paul. I think one of the things is how loose the snow is. You know, if it's very powdery and it's able to be picked up, a 35-mile-an-hour wind might do it. If it's a wet snow, you know, you could have a 50-mile-an-hour wind and it still wouldn't be able to pick up the snow that's already fallen. Rich, can you tell, I know you've got some great stories. You, you got the one story in March of 1984 where you lost track of where you lived, I guess, and then, the, of course, the February 4th, 1984 blizzard as well. You want to elaborate on those two events to give people an idea what it was like in the 1980s when we had the good old-fashioned storytelling blizzards? Well, sure, I'd be happy to do that. Actually, I think I might have misquoted 1984. I looked it up, and it was either March 3rd or March 31st of 1985. And the reason I remember that is I used to be on the Weather Service bowling team, and I was supposed to be picked up by um, one of um, my fellow workers and taken to the bowling alley. Well, the snow had fallen so incredibly fast, and exposure is everything when it comes to drifts and blizzards. And where I had moved to is right across the street from a park. And so the east and northeast winds blow without any obstruction right across the street from the park. And so much snow fell that it completely filled in the street. So when the city came by to plow the street, it didn't realize that there was a street that I lived on. And so the snow kept piling up deeper, and it was to the point where you couldn't tell that there was a street out there. It was about, you know, the drifts were probably three feet deep all the way across from the park right into my front yard, including the street. So I called up the city and I the next day, and I said, you know, I almost missed my bowling date with my uh, fellow employees last night because my plow wasn't, my uh, road wasn't plowed. So they sent over a snow plow, and they didn't even try plowing it. Hmm. They came up and said, you know, if we try to plow this, we'll get our snow plow stuck. So they brought in a caterpillar, and they started to move it, and the caterpillar got stuck. And I said, well, does this mean I have to wait for the snow to melt, you know, in April or May? And they said, we'll bring in the front-end loader. It's the biggest snow equipment we have in the city, and if this doesn't work, then you're really stuck. So the front-end loader worked, but it was pretty amazing. Bringing out the heavy artillery there. Absolutely. Let's remind people that this is the Twin Cities you're talking about, too. This is not out in the middle of uh, nowhere in central Minnesota. Right, and it all has to do with the exposure, my living across the street from a park. When I used to live in south Minneapolis, we never got any type of uh, big snowstorms like that in terms of losing track of where the street was because the trees were there and they broke the wind and the snow pretty much fell straight down, at least in my front yard. And let's talk about that for a minute. How big is topography, tree cover, vegetation in determining who gets blizzard conditions and who doesn't in the same storm? Oh, topography is, is everything. We have a map at the Weather Service that we had kind of sketched out that pretty much the edge of the tree line dis, uh, defines really the blizzard country. If you draw a line from, say, um, 
northeast of Rochester, up through uh, Wilmer, through extreme western Stearns County, up through Fergus Falls, and then up to Thief River Falls. Everything southwest of that line is extremely blizzard-prone because there's a dearth of trees and the wind blows unabated. You get into the forests, you know, around Brainerd and Bemidji and areas like that, even the city of St. Cloud, Cambridge, it's very, very difficult to get blizzard conditions because the wind just breaks the snowfall. And Rich uh, and Craig, chime in on this if you want to also. For folks that may yet experience a blizzard this year or next year, what's the best way to survive a blizzard if you get caught? Well, absolutely, is staying in your car. That's probably where you're going to get caught. There was a very tragic event back on February 4th of 1984 when we had a blizzard that really came up quite unexpectedly. Um, It wouldn't in this day and age in 2009, but back in the early 1980s, our, our observation network, our understanding of the science, the power of computers to simulate weather, Uh, are really small compared to what they are today. So that particular blizzard on February 4, 1984, killed 22 people in western Minnesota. And I think virtually every one of the deaths was attributed to someone leaving the safety of their vehicle, which I think is, you know, it's quite natural for human nature to think, I've got this huge storm, I've got to get out of my car. But your car is safer, and one of the other big things that has changed is back in the early 1980s, you know, there weren't cell phones and cell phone towers. Right. Uh, Now if you have a cell phone and a cell phone tower so you can communicate, you know, you can be in touch with law enforcement, and hopefully they'll, they'll convince you to stay in the car because they will get to you. Once you get outside, you get lost because of the zero visibility, the whiteout conditions, and the extreme wind chills, hypothermia. Very, very dangerous to leave the safety of a vehicle. Yeah, I've got a little bit of a story about my former chief meteorologist in Indianapolis violated almost all the rules of going out in a blizzard. He left without telling anybody his travel plans, was out in the middle of Nebraska in early April in a blizzard and barely made it back to safe shelter. He kept going down all these back roads out in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, didn't tell a relative where he was going to be or when he was going to be there, and and was not traveling in what we would like to call a car carpool, not a carpool, but at least in uh, you know, like a convoy, mm-hmm. they're traveling with other vehicles. He barely made it back to shelter. He lifted up the hood of his car and it was full of snow. The fan belt was off, and he was down on his knees giving thanks that he made it back to safe shelter. So even in April, you can have a blizzard-like conditions, early April in the northern and central plains. And, and uh, you know, I hate to admit it, but I've almost died in a severe thunderstorm out trying to watch the storm. So I think what we learned today is meteorologists are people, too, <laughs> and we make weather <laughs> mistakes as well. Rich Neistat, thanks for blowing into jet streaming today. Absolutely loved it. Thanks, Paul. Well, believe it or not, there's a kinder and gentler side to March. Maple syrup. That's right. March is the month where the sugar maple trees drip liquid gold in these parts. Jerry Jacobson, well, he's a sweet guy, and he's also the president of the Minnesota Maple Syrup Producers Association, and he joins us today from Vergas, Minnesota. That's just a few sap buckets south of Detroit Lakes in the west-central part of the state. 
And Jerry, first of all, I hope I pronounced it right. And second of all, I hear it's also home to the world's largest loon. Uh, yeah, Vergus would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're uh, just about 15 miles from Detroit Lakes, and we're up in the lakes country. And yeah, Vergus has the largest loon. Okay, so what does weather have to do with maple syrup? Quite a bit, actually. Um, for maple syrup to run, of course, you have to have warm days, uh, preferably temperatures that are in the mid-30s to upper 40s. And at night, uh, it has to get below freezing. And generally, you're looking at maybe mid-20s. And you need that cycle uh, of temperature for a period of time in order to get the trees running. And in Minnesota, well, where we are anyway, we probably have about a three-week period in the spring where those uh, temperatures are ideal for the sap to run in the trees. And uh, other parts of the state, it might be a little bit longer. I think southern Minnesota might have a slightly longer season than we do up here. So you're looking for those kind of temperatures. This is Craig Edwards, Jerry, and I was wondering, what does it take to become proficient or an expert in creating the maple syrup that once you have uh, tapped these trees, how do you become an expert into making this into syrup? I know we, we can talk about the weather, and Paul will have more questions on that, but I, I know some people get started in this, and is there a trick to, to knowing what you're doing instead of just going out there and tapping a tree for some syrup? Yeah, um, I you know, I think anybody who's interested in getting into maple syrup should probably do a little research first. There's a lot of equipment you need to do it. And, uh, I, I, you know, to do it the right way and not spend a lot of money, I think if you're a hobbyist, uh, it's kind of good to look at what other people are doing and, you know, how they're uh, evaporating uh, the sap to get maple syrup. Uh, in Minnesota, there are approximately, according to the USDA, senses about 256 people that do maple syrup Hmm. and out of that i'd say the majority of that 256 are people that we call hobbyists you know they're just doing it for themselves or family and friends and they might do somewhere under 100 uh taps whereas we also have a maybe 100 people or so in minnesota that are commercial producers Mm mm-hmm and, uh, you know, the biggest one we have in Minnesota does around twelve to 13,000 taps, and they're up by uh, Lutzen. And there are some other big ones, too, along the North Shore. But I'd say the average um, licensed producer, commercial producer in Minnesota, probably has anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 taps that they do. Jerry, does it seem to matter what kind of a winter we've had, or does the sap pretty much just get going when we hit those optimal weather conditions, no matter what, in the spring? Well, you know, there are so many factors. Uh, the last couple of years, we've had pretty good snowfall, I guess, uh, on our trees, which means the frost doesn't go very deep. In years where you don't have the snow cover, which we had up to the last two years, uh, we didn't have any snow cover till almost uh, end of February. Mm-hmm. And the frost went down pretty deep. And in order to get a good run, that frost has to come out of the ground, too. And uh, like I say, when you have a good snow cover like we have here and it came early, I don't think the frost went very deep. So, you know, if uh, we get the temperatures that we're looking for and and a good snow melt, uh, I think this will be a good year for maple syrup. At least all indications are that we will. Is it just sugar maples, Jerry, or will any maple do? Well, sugar maple is predominantly what we have here. Uh, also, there's something called the black maple, but they're pretty closely related, you know, sugar and the black maple. Uh, you can also tap silver maple, 
uh, box elder, uh, red maple, uh, by Duluth. Uh, in that area, there's a lot of red maple that they, uh, that they tap. The box elder and the silver maple are a soft maple, where the others are a hard maple. And the sugar content's a bit higher in the uh, sugar and the black red maples. So, Jerry, from the time you tap these trees and get this sap and this syrupy thing going to the time you put it on the shelf, what's what's the process, the timeline like? Is it something that can be done over a matter of a week or two? In our case, uh, we're a commercial producer. We, uh, we have about 1,600 taps out, and uh, we buy sap from another 500 trees from a neighbor, and they deliver the sap to us. Uh, it takes us about two weeks to do our tapping. And uh, we'll probably start, well, the weather, we had a big storm up here, so it kind of delayed us. But normally we would have started tapping uh, last Monday. And like I said, it takes about two weeks for us to set our taps. And by then, in our area, generally the sap starts running about that last week in March. At that point, you start collecting the sap, and, uh, and then you have to boil it down, and that cycle of uh, warm temperature and freezing nights, like I said, is about a three-week period. So generally, if we, if we start getting a run at the end of March, we probably will be done about mid-April. Jerry, I've heard that sunshine can have a positive effect on the flow of sap. Is that true? Have you been able to observe that? For the most part, it does. However, uh, you know, there are times where uh, we've had really cloudy springs. I think last year was a good case where we were waiting and waiting for a run because we didn't have any sunshine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of a cloudy, gloomy day. And I think the temperatures were like in the mid-30s. And I certainly didn't think it would run, but my neighbor who does sap, he called and he said, my buckets are almost full, you better go check yours. Hmm. And it had run really good, you know, on that cloudy day. Generally sunshine, yeah, it, it, it helps the flow, but it can also run pretty good when it's cloudy and you've got the mid-30 temperatures. So who knows why maple trees do what they do. Well, listen... Jerry, um, here's a little opportunity for some of our listeners uh, to get out and kind of experience uh, maple syruping. It's maple syruping days at Lee and Rose Warner Nature Center. That's in Marine on St. Croix. Sunday, March 22nd from 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, March 28th from 9 a.m. to noon. And it's a day in the sugar bush. Taste some fresh syrup. Uh, demonstrations going on. Uh, again, that's Lee and Rose Warner Nature Center, Marine on St. Croix. You can call them for details or find them on the web. Jerry, uh, we think it's pretty cool what you do, and thanks for sweetening the pot for us a bit on sure. jet streaming today. All right, no problem. All right, thunder in the forecast, uh, at least in the coming months here in the upper Midwest, already going on down in the south-central plains. And, Craig, that's our website of the week today, a site that you and I find near and dear to our heart, hearts and use during severe weather. Tell us about it. Yeah, if you want to start getting geared up for the severe weather season, you're going to have to look south first this time of the year with the snow on the ground we have, and it doesn't look like much activity here in the next week or so. But we found that Iowa Mesonet site to be very, uh, very full of information, Paul, particularly with the radar and the warnings. And that's Mesonet, that's M-E-S-O-N-E-T dot A-G-R-O-N, that's probably an abbreviation for agronomy, A-G-R-O-N dot I-A-State dot E-D-U. So that's from the 
Iowa Mesonet and the Iowa State Education Department. So uh, very good weather site. Click on severe weather, and you can just probe wherever you want to go and find severe weather information, also regional weather information just for daily use as well. Yeah, it's nice. gives you a little map, and it highlights the counties that have warnings and then updates them uh, automatically as new warnings come out. Good stuff, Craig. Thank you. Listener feedback, we love to hear from you, our jet streaming listeners. So go ahead. Don't be shy. Drop us a note uh, with your thoughts or questions about the show or suggestions for future shows. And, Craig, another good discussion today. Thank you. Hey, great stuff, Paul. And I go back and listen to our shows, and we've got a lot of information. I hope the word's getting out about what we're doing at Jet Streaming on NPR. I hope so, too. And what I find when I go back is that we have a lot of very interesting guests, and we cover a lot of territory, which I like. You're not hearing that anywhere else. It's good stuff. That wraps this week's ride on Jet Streaming. Uh, note to our fellow weather geeks, uh, I mean Jet Streaming listeners, I'll be away for a few weeks getting fixed up with one last medical procedure. Oh, joy. So please join Stephen John, who will be filling in with the Jet Streaming crew for a while. For producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and sound guru Randy Johnson, I'm Paul Hutner. Keep your ear here to Jet Streaming and at least one weather eye to the sky. <laughs>